Hi, everyone. Thank you for uh, joining us today. Today, our speaker is Ruth. So uh, she will uh, share with us how to use VR as a medium for harm and healing. And she has a wonderful story uh, related to this. So that's welcome, uh, Ruth. And uh, yeah, and thank you that uh, she is our speaker. And I will pass my baton to you. Yay. Well, thank you for having me. I'm realizing that when I reset my computer, it took away permissions for Safari to share. So I'm fixing that right now, but I may have to dramatically exit for one moment. Yes, it looks like I do. Okay. I'm going to do a disappear, reappear. Okay. Yeah, so we are waiting for our um, uh, speakers to reset the computer. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, so we just wait and uh, yeah, or anything to share. Wes, maybe you could type into the chat. I've had a question that I wanted to ask you. Is there any particular software that you use for organizing your ideas. Um, uh, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you now. Well, um, the, the answer is no. Um, I just, I write everything in Microsoft Word or the, the free version, but, but that's it. I don't have any special software. Okay, okay. Ruth, I think you mute yourself. There we go. Okay, I'm back with unmute. I guess that was automatic. Um, okay, so thank you for coming today. Uh, this is a presentation made spontaneously off of an event that happened a couple weeks ago. If any of you have seen my LinkedIn profile, um, I had a colleague and friend, unfortunately, who experienced a sexual assault a couple weeks ago in virtual reality. And uh, my background in psychology plus the niche field of VR kind of collided at a whole other level and um, brought me to not only writing this, this kind of extensive piece around understanding rupture and trauma in VR, but also um, reaching back out into the field. I've been on a bit of a break and doing more networking because there was harm that happened here. And there's a really um, brilliant and diverse human being who has been contributing to VR that doesn't feel safe in VR anymore. And so it, it kind of got my blood going to start talking about this again. So today we'll use the time however works for us. I like smaller groups always because that means it can be a conversation. Please don't feel like we have to make this too formal. Um, I'm very on the fly. Um, and what we'll try to 
keep it structured in is that uh, there'll be this presentation part for about a half hour. And then if you have a pen and paper or you want to use your computer, we're going to try out a version of this conflict resiliency model that I have taught for years and developed um, as a coping mechanism for conflict, ironically, many years ago. Um, and we're gonna see how it fits with this situation and with that sense that when we hear things like assault or sexual, or even for some of us, VR, it kind of puts us into freeze mode, like you know, lean back and watch or freeze and wait for it to be over or just look away because it's so scary. And so we're gonna talk about conflict resiliency and how to use our emotions and our body sensations to actually get us back in the moment. And then we'll have an hour discussion open. And uh, yeah, I really like the, the time window here because usually uh, what I've noticed in the tech industry is people are like 25 minute meetings and then it's over. And it's hard to have meaningful conversations about things like this in 25 minutes. So thank you for being here on your Saturday morning and yeah, please again, jump in, ask questions. Who am I? Ruth Diaz. Uh, this is the first time I've ever put artist at the top, which is like a scary thing for me. I've never identified as an artist and yet out of necessity of the community design work um, I've been doing in virtual reality, I had to learn how to build worlds. And so I've done that in a couple of different platforms, dabbled in Unity, but more I'm, I'm the mainstream build with my hands kind of person. And yet I think everyone who's experienced the environments I build calls them art first because they don't experience them as just mimicking physical reality. They have a lot of emotions come up and art does that for us. It brings up emotions. Um, I'm also a DEI consultant. And I inform on oppressive systems that are blocking diversity, both within communities and within organizations. That is activism work. It is intense and sometimes exhausting, but very fulfilling to watch changes happen when they do. I am an organizational psychologist. I have transferred my skill set and education from clinical into organizational over the years, partly because of this model that I teach. And then I talked a little bit about my community design work. Uh, I've been in mostly Facebook or Meta, Horizon Worlds, but also in alt space, a little bit in rec room doing consulting work and supporting developers who don't necessarily have that biopsychosocial background in understanding how their environments and how their body language and how their systems are influencing the kinds of conflict that they're experiencing in their populations. So I like to go broad and then kind of find different ways we can answer questions together. So recognizing how we all introduced ourselves today, I noticed that many of us talked about how we applied in VR or in the tech industry. And yet we also know that the way we bond, the way we fit together is we often talk about like, where are we all on this planet right now? Where do we live? Or what's the weather like? As a teenager, I suffered quite a bit with all the weather talk in the South, which is where I'm from. 
um, I didn't understand the point of it. It felt like it was, uh, I don't know, superficial and it didn't super apply to me and my problems and, and excitements. And I just wanted to get that over with. People also like to bond over sports, even in a conflict way, a playful conflict way, or what kind of hobbies we have. These are different ways that we have routines and we have experiences that create a set of expectations about how we get along together. And so we're gonna talk about some definitions of when that goes wrong. And these are just some, you know, literal Oxford dictionary slash Google definitions, just making sure we're on the same page. What happens when harmony and union and connection gets dissonant and disconnected. So I, I enjoyed kind of going back and reviewing this rupture, right? So harmony is the sense of we're in a rhythm together and rupture is the disruption of that. It's, it's a sense of, it's not just a mistake, it's a new pattern and it's, it's unpleasant. Versus trauma is something that has reached deeper. I think about rupture, like breaking the skin and trauma is like getting into muscle tissue. Trauma is something where it's gonna take time to heal and it's gonna be continually painful. And then I like to break, uh, instead of saying real life versus uh, VR, I like to break it down into PR versus VR because I don't wanna discriminate against the reality that virtual reality is teaching us about. It feels like a hierarchy when we say real life versus VR. So you'll hear me say PR versus VR today and wanted to let you know what that meant. So I think about physical reality as a way we brought ourselves into the present moment, the way we have collectively organized enough to get along and build systems of communication and um, economics and getting all of our collective needs met. Versus virtual reality is a bit in, in from the psychology end of me, I think Carl Jung, you know, is rolling over in his dusty grave somewhere because he, as one of the fathers of virtual reality, envisioned a collective dream state that we all meet in even. And a part of him, I think, believed that was real. And virtual reality feels like in many ways the manifestation of that. It's something that we were basically just moving pixels around in front of our eyes and making noises. And, and that translates to like really complex meaning to the point where our bodies and ourselves really believe that we're in that place. And not only we're in it, but we're in it together and we can co-create it. And there's a lot of, I think, very concrete, literal magic to that. It's, it's really phenomenal. Um, it's also very deceptive in some ways because our body isn't in that place. And yet um, more and more the technology is getting to the place where we believe it's, it's true. And so I'm going to show you some gradients of relationships. Um, my training clinically was in Gestalt. So the theory with Gestalt is that we're always in a I versus an object relationship with each other. And if I'm in an I-thou relationship with you, there's a present, there's a health. If I am truly making you an object, I'm othering you, that's where we get into harm because you're not a dynamic complex being to me anymore. You're something to use or get away from. 
Uh, so, so really basic illustrations here, but just looking at these, what are the stories that we tell ourselves just with this super simple diagrams of, if we think about the circles here as a concept of self, where that line is, is where I end or you end. This is some basic illustrations for us to kind of practice and play around with this. And I'm gonna let this part be a little bit interactive so we can make sure we're all on the same page as to what we're seeing. So anybody, what is a story you might tell about one of these lines here? You, me, us. Um, this is ET. I'll, I'll jump in. I love this. And you forgot one. It's all about me. <laughs> That's the next page. But anyway, it's just like our interaction at AWE. You know, we were both exhausted from the show. We'd been walking around. I was doing booth duty and we sat down. We didn't know each other. We just stroke up a conversation. So I went from the you and the us from everybody at the show to me and you. Mm -hmm. And we found our mutual goals. Um, I think uh, I told you, you didn't know I was a Latina and all of this. So we connected on a common ground and we were, you know, they were outnumbered by men at the event. So we yeah. commented as, as females and tech and, and just, just broadened. And, and you even offered to, to bring your VR glasses from your car because I've never really used them, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah. you were very, very open. And I go, wow, she, she's, you know, I can learn a lot from this girl. So, you know, we left, we both left very happy and we haven't seen each other since. So, you know, I think that we were able to connect in just a few minutes time, learn yeah. about each other and know that we would cross paths again at a later date. Yeah. Well, that's really well put. I like that. There was a symbiosis there where we wanted to explore what was the S in this and kind of trusted the timing, but also showed up. And, and really connected. Yeah. What about one farther down? If somebody can take a crack at it, what about like the circle of you and us with me on the outside or us and me and you on the outside? What does that feel like? What's the story there? I guess you could have a group of people who know each other. Mm -hmm. And um, that's someone who is not part of that group. Mm -hmm. And that can create these types of situations. Yeah, so. that's really well put. So, and, and what can happen is when, so this, is, this group is small enough, it's a really good example. I feel a symbiosis in this group. There's a, there's a, a fluidity to how you're all communicating that I wouldn't be surprised if you've all met in person and had drinks together or whatever. It feels like that. And so if I was coming into this, especially just as a participant, as opposed to like the speaker. So I feel very welcomed here. Right. But if I was coming to this from the outside and I didn't know, you know, like, why would anyone do a free two hour workshop? What are they going to try to sell me at the end? Wow. All these people, you know, I could tell myself some elaborate stories about what's going on here. And in VR, I would guess that the window is maybe about 30 seconds. If you watch when somebody comes into a shared common space, if the group in that space, especially if they're standing around together, does not acknowledge that person coming in, A, by just like looking at them and nodding, 
or B, ideally actually like motions for them to come in, that person will leave pretty quickly or they'll flip and they will target. So it's that sense of, I don't belong. So I'm going to like rush myself in here and push really hard and being invited, especially for people who, who invade um, is a very disorienting experience. Cause that's not, that's not very common in VR, unfortunately. Uh, just open space, social VR is what I've noticed. So, so quickly, just with circles and these, you know, words, you, me, us, we're already determining how the relationship is going to form, how it feels, what it, what it's like. Now we're going to look at when it turns uh, wonky is my technical word for it. So in psychology, this concept of enmeshment is that maybe at the top here, we merge so much in our identities that we don't even have in us. It's just, it's just like a union and I don't know what's separate and we can finish each other's sentences, but also a lot of people who have enmeshment cycles have a lot of anxiety uh, around doing anything differently. There's a lot of fear of like, if, if the identity that we fuse together changes at all, I might lose my sense of self. And so that can create in, in groups that can create a cliquish feel where there's this sense of really solid outness or, um, exiling people that can also create a sense of like, real draw to be inside of it. Uh, so organizations that are doing really well and successful, everybody wants to pile in, you know? Uh, and then there's identities like projection where my concept of us and your concept of us might be two different things, but we don't necessarily know that. And I might be taking up way more space than you. And we're not necessarily talking about that. And so we're in this projective relationship that can rip apart pretty intensely. And for the moment, it might be working. Anyone want to take a stab at the one on the bottom? Maybe it's delusional you. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe yeah, we envision. No. There's someone's there, but someone is not there, maybe ghosts or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I, I like that. I think it it's a piece about um, not fully formed identity is what I what I meant to to imply there with those dotted lines. So almost like a very permeable identity. Or um, I've heard some people in VR say that they're geckos or they're um, you know, octopi, like they, they can conform to a lot of different shapes and things, but they don't necessarily know who they are. And so it's hard to know who we are if you don't know who you are. And I've noticed, especially in virtual reality, that there seems to be a lot of people that lose that sense of self with the exposure to very stimulating environments. And when we lose that sense of self, then all these unconscious parts of us can come out and take over. And it might shock people in physical reality to see how we're behaving in virtual reality um, in a pleasant way or a really concerning way. And so uh, it's something to think about in this idea of identity rupture in, in physical reality, we might be really rude to a stranger or like 
to ground this as an example, I was at the pharmacy a couple months ago and uh, I was super distracted, but I saw this spark of kind of like wide eyes on the, on the person who was serving me's face when I, when I asked if we were finished, cause it seemed to be turning into a long conversation. So I was like, are we done here? And in my heart, in my mind, I was just asking a question, but watching that reflection in her eyes, I realized that they were experiencing some fear of me. And it was a wake up call of going like, okay, I need to simplify and come back down to the me that I wanna present with everyone. In virtual reality, that can be even more intense as far as like all the things that are pulling our attention. So that's a bit of a setup to, to talk about with those common ground routines experiences in VR, they matter even more. And they're things that either have been shaped before we got there, not by evolution, but by corporate structures, by, by people who had an idea that everyone else thought was okay, but hasn't been tested the same way that evolution tests our physical reality over time. And so yet they feel so real that we, we forget that maybe only one person decided this was the experience or this was the environment. Maybe this isn't tested at all to control for toxic or harmful behaviors. And often when I've talked to developers, I've found that it does not um, have a background in anything psychology. Um, it's just something that was attractive and became popular, but nobody's really talking about why it's popular and what categories are missing and making environments popular. So when we have conflict and then we get disrupted in that conflict, we return to what our common ground is. But in virtual reality, our common ground is often designed by other people and are even what we're wearing and how we're presenting is designed by other people. And that is important to think about here in this story we're gonna talk about. So here's another one. What is the story we tell here? Anyone want to try? It seems like uh, me is being aggressive or, or aggressive oriented and you not. And then in VR, maybe there's going to be an explosion there. Yeah, this seems like a really big setup here, right? These are three-dimensional avatars that you may be able to find something very similar to these in virtual reality. And it is... For people who spend a lot of time in social VR, it's almost like these go away in their minds. They're, they're almost like a, an accessory. Um, but for people who don't spend a lot of time in social VR, these are really powerful stories that are coming across with these avatars that we're wearing. And how we match up in those avatars absolutely determines what's going to happen and how we connect. Does anyone here, have you ever heard that like the jokes about how Ikea is the place that all couples go to argue? Is that interesting? Yeah. It, does it make sense though? Like I, back in the day when I was working as a counselor, I can't tell you how many couples ended up in therapy saying we were at Ikea and we realized we needed help. 
So like environments are really powerful to create the conversation. Think about if those couples were wearing these kinds of avatars in Ikea, what kind of conflict and harm could happen? And some social VR apps control for that by just making everyone required to be human. But that is also kind of a, a, an inversion of what's being intended. If people don't have the chance to wear the animalistic avatars that they're feeling like and then behave as animals, but their avatars are looking really innocent and peaceful, there's, there's a strange um, violation in that respect also that, it, that also comes into the story that I'm going to share. So environment matters. So these are some of the avatars in different platforms. And it was interesting to like put them next to each other and just look at this and ask myself the questions. What do these avatars tell us about how the people who maybe selected them are feeling? What do the environments that they're set up in also tell us about what happens in that place? Any thoughts on this, this page before we keep going? Sure, some of you are familiar with these. Oh, uh, maybe this is kind of uh, uh, an identity, right? Uh, people associate, and uh, also, for example, in business, we wear suits. In a social place, we wear casual. And <laughs> uh, in enemy, right? Expo, we dress like the animation stuff. Very mm -hmm. similar to uh, the group identity and personal identity to this group. Kind of yeah. like, oh, like, like we always wear different hats in real world, in this reality. And same we will carry to this virtual world. And I remember I, in AWE, I keep asking everyone one question. Do you think in the uh, virtual world, should we have multiple avatars or we just have one? And everyone mm -hmm. says the same answer. Of course, we need to have multiple for different events. And mm -hmm. I was like, but you see, like we, you, you, I only have this avatar, right? And I switch clothes for different mm -hmm. events. But mm -hmm. in virtual reality, what if you switch avatar? For example, I'm a person and let, next time I become a pig, next time mm -hmm. I become a dinosaur, right? Mm -hmm. How can, like this is so dramatically changed that, yeah, how, how, how can we even identify a person? But they just say, oh, it's like a changing clothes or something. But mm -hmm. I, what I want to say is that we use our face, right? Our face for everything, even our clothes is changing. But what if we change our face? And mm -hmm. what can be identified? Maybe fingerprint, but how can you even see a fingerprint and know this fingerprint is somebody else? Yeah, it's just like my thoughts, but I'm open, yeah. yeah. No, that's really well put. I'd like to chime in because, you know, I'm the old lady here in the group and I did online virtual stuff back in the 90s, okay, when you guys were still in embryos there. <laughs> um, I, and, I go, and everybody knows me as ET. And why is that? Okay. First of all, it started when the movie came out, but I had already been using it long since then. You know, I did not like the name Troutner, you know, my, my, my Latina name was Emilia Margarita Cruz. And when I married a German and I was called Frau Troutner, I just gagged, okay? <laughs> so I said, call me E.T. And that was in the 70s, okay? I was married at age 19 to a German um, engineer. Uh, mm -hmm. Also, I found that 
I was a woman working at Intel and distributor sales. And if they thought I was a man, they wouldn't take me I, I mean, as a woman, they wouldn't take me serious. Mm-hmm. So I find everything as E.T. E. Troutner. OK, distributor sales manager, blah, blah, blah. And uh, we sent uh, telexes. We didn't even have email at that time. OK, <laughs> that's how far back I go with tech. Mm-hmm. And then we evolved. Um, I went to work in banking. The same thing, E. Troutner, E.T., I started doing my own personas in my presentations that looked like little aliens because it broke the ice. And again, I was like maybe the three women in the room. Okay. But it got people's attention. They didn't ask me, do you have electrical engineering? Are you certified uh, CPA? All of that nonsense. It was just, Hey, I'm here to train you on your mainframe, you know, mm-hmm. just get down to work, come to my training classes. And, and by the way, here's your bill. You know, it was like expensive transactions going on. So I found that the ET and my persona, even though I was a kind little Latina girl, when I get up and go to work, I'm this tough broad that's dictating mm-hmm. technology for global banking systems. Okay. Yeah. Then I got cancer. Uh, I started working in internet stuff in the early 90s, and I had all kinds of avatars. You know, mm-hmm. I worked for uh, Solvam Teleport, first U.S.-Russian uh, communication system for cultural exchange. Mm-hmm. And we had graphic artists from Russia that had all this wonderful stuff. Unfortunately, it took a long time to download. And that's mm-hmm. when like the, the new life or, and all of these other uh, things, the well, you know, emails, all that. So all these beautiful artists were creating these beautiful pictures and we shared them. And once in a while, I would present those in my presentations or in my talks that hey, this is E.T., this wonderful green girl, you know, or this little creature that looks like, uh, you know, what I use now is like the, 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 the big eyes. So to me, it's a natural thing. In Arizona, where I grew up, the Navajos and um, others, they have an animal spirit. Mm-hmm. And what I see them doing even back then is having, hey, I'm Little Bird. Hey, I'm I'm. Uh, wolf hey i'm mama bear you know my sister is mama bear we all yeah. know her. since she was a baby mm-hmm. she was bear. now she's mama bear so mm-hmm. it's a natural progression the fact that we're all going to live to be 100 years old why not why have to live in one shell you're you're transforming you're experiencing life in many different ways so have a business avatar have a family avatar I create avatars now for a living for customers with voice. And to me, it's like, why not? If you don't do that, <laughs> you're, you're missing out. And mm. thank you. Yeah. Thank you for all of that. That's, there's, there's a, feels like a LinkedIn article and everything you just shared there, because I, I think very much like we have many different ways to connect through social media in the 3D world, we're gonna connect through different avatars also. And there's something uncomfortable about that, understandably, in that sense of steadiness, just like we have common weather in physical reality, we have the same car every day. Um, it's, it's hard to see people switch. In fact, my avatars often very closely resemble what I look like. And every once in a while, um, often due to trauma, I will really neutralize my avatars and take all my identity off them if that goes on, just to kind of take a vacation from that assumption. 
But over time, I've heard more and more people have a deep sense of disturbed uh, uh, vibe or affect around me um, because they're used to my consistency. And that's part of their routine that helps them feel safe. I, and so I think something that strikes me about all this, what we're seeing on the screen right now, is that people may have a different persona that they exhibit in different situations. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what I would call archetypes. Like sometimes they can be personal archetypes. Sometimes they can be archetypes to appeal to others also. If we're aware of the archetypes that we're embodying, it can be stimulating and interesting. However, most people don't have a lot of familiarity even with that word archetype. And so, uh, it, it can be very two-dimensional inside to resemble something that we haven't thought about, like, why did I pick this versus something else? And we haven't thought about what that's going to evoke in other people that's going to bring out of us. So in the top right-hand one, that's alt space. And my avatar, you'll see a little later on, um, looks a little bit like a leprechaun. I did not design it to look like a leprechaun. I just like the color green, so I have a lot of green on it. Um, however, uh, I found out a couple months into doing an event series that people had been coming for weeks and suppressing the, the thought that I was a leprechaun because they didn't think it was appropriate for the event, but it was like a thought intrusion for a couple of them. And they it all came out and they just felt so much relief getting to just say that. And so there can be a shared sense of agreement on what the archetype is we're embodying or disagreement. But there's a lot of complexity where, whereas a few slides ago, we were just exploring circles and we could tell some in pattern match, some interesting stories. Can you imagine all the stories we get stimulated in with these, with these beings? And, and this feels important to, to talk about. So like, I told you, here's, here's some different details about me as a professional. But what I didn't say is that hat, that whole picture was taken because I knit compulsively very rarely. And uh, the end of my knitting is usually a hat of sorts. And I'll put it on, I'll take a picture, and I usually send it off to someone and never see it or wear it again. Um, and then the oils in the background, those little bottles, uh, I am an essential oil nerd. And these are pieces about me you would not necessarily ever see in an avatar or think to ask about, uh, but they're important parts of me that I enjoy. And uh, if you ever come over and have some drinks, I'll make you an essential oil cocktail and blow your mind. If I had put this kind of profile picture with the same thing, what would that have told you about me? So this is one of the avatars that I often wear versus this one. The previous one, it looks more stylish and mm -hmm. confident. And the mm -hmm. next one looks more childish and cute. Mm -hmm. Right, so there's some innocence that could work for meeting people, but it also might not have as much authority in the room. I lead a lot of events with that avatar, not with the unicorn horn, but definitely those open eyes. I can't see the whole picture because of the, the text block, but on the first one, you look like a pirate to me. Actually, it's funny, yeah. The original outfit that I picked with that one was had these flowy, 
um, kind of clothes and people thought I should wear an eye patch to just go with it. And I was kind of yeah. like the, the, rebel, the rebel of the application. I was doing it different and being on the periphery. So yeah, it's a good yeah. call. This shows this one. I see you as an adventurous person that maybe you like to explore or travel by yourself. This other one. And if you had a companion is that you're more timid and maybe travel with a friend and yeah. not just venture off. Yeah. It was amazing, like I said, in the 70s, when I would just take off, even in Germany or in the US without my husband, and people say, oh, you want a table for one, you know, or you're checking in a hotel by yourself. It was a big deal. You know, it's like now it's like, who cares? But you know, yeah. it's just that perception that you should be attached to someone or something. Uh, yes, somebody needs to protect you. Yeah. That's, that's all really interesting feedback. I'm glad I did this. So now we're going to dive in and ground this because for a lot of headies here, we're, it's easy to intellectualize. So if you haven't had a chance, you can read more details of the whole experience. But this is a very brief summary of what happened a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I decided to write this piece in solidarity to my friend. We're going to call her Carrie. And um, I... I wanted to give her the chance to have her story told without outing her in this profession because she and I have both experienced a lot of bias and um, ghosting or not being given a seat at the table, partly because we are women in tech or that's how we've connected the dots. Um, so, so I wrote the story from almost the bystander perspective and, and not being the bystander like that I heard this story and I decided to do something about it, partly out of my horror of all the bystanders who were there. One of the things uh, she did before she called me after this experience was she had logged back in briefly to the application to just see if she could figure out how to block him by going to who she had been around recently. And she noted that he had 1800 hours in the social VR application. On the right-hand side, you can see a little bit of the detail of what he did. He was using objects to violate her body and, and audibly telling her what he was doing, aggressively moving into her body repeatedly. And a whole group of white male avatars were standing around and never said a word about this not being okay. And it went on for quite a while. And I think that most people who would have that kind of attack would leave. But if you knew my friend and you also consider that she's a VR professional, there was a part of her that was probably hanging in there because she didn't want to give up her space because this is her work environment in general. Like she's never had that sense of unsafety to the point of having to leave like that. And so she kept trying to use her options to take care of herself and try to get rid of this person. And eventually she lost that battle. And, and it really moved into her body physically. She has had a lot of symptoms since then and is, is pretty disrupted by this experience. A lot of flashbacks, nausea, distraction, like hard to concentrate. It's really affecting her ability to be a human being in the world. And so I would call this a significant trauma. So before we move on to like understanding a little bit about that, I just want to like pause and recognize that a human being got really hurt here and make some space for us to acknowledge that together. What's it like to see this story and hear about this? The, the thing that baffles me about 
these types of activities is what do the perpetrators get out of it? And, and, and what does that imply about their own behavior in, in the real physical world? Yeah, yeah. It, it's, um, I, I tried in my better moments to imagine that if this person saw themselves from physical reality doing this, they would never think that that was who they are. But I don't really know. I think that's a lot of hours to be able to get away with that kind of behavior. <laughs> And, um, and it, it's very concerning to me from a pathology standpoint. It's concerning to me about that social VR application that that's a reality and that, um, and that this person has had that much practice and apparently had enough power in the room and ease with what they were doing that nobody was trying to interrupt it. Yeah. Yeah, and my point, I'm wearing my regulatory hat is that this is why we can't just have everybody be anonymous and everybody do whatever the hell you want, okay? We all have this kind of, of thing, you know, and that's why people go to Burning Man. It's like, you can explore, you can do things you'd never do in real life. And, you know, all those pre, like I said, online worlds, Planet Nine and, and all of those that, that developed in the 90s is that, and, and there was, you know, I started doing internet porn for Gorbachev. Shop. That's how we made money. So. I saw the ugly and said, bullshit, you know, we got to make some good. Let's do cancer research instead. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. So, so you take this technology and you build it. But my point is that I want to work with Wes and Jim and others to create better tools, be able to monitor. And, you know, right now I talked to one lady, they have human monitors in their meditation sessions, but they only have like 40 or 50 events per week. She wants to go to 4,000 events per week. So yeah. she's asking me, do you have any automation tools? Do you have a better way of doing this? You know, how can we do this? How can we add more tools in the standard bubble and, and that? Um, yeah. I also have three granddaughters, you know, and I'm teaching them how to do stuff, programming yeah. and things. Yeah. And I want them protected. But I also see men and seniors. Everybody needs that, you know, yeah. so. So there's, there's a place where you have to draw the line. I become the tiger mom. I become the regulatory person and said, hey, you know, I, yeah. Meta, yeah. if you can't clean up your act, Amazon, you can't clean up your act, I will sue you. And I will have the state of California attorney general on my side, you know, because I got to educate them, her, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, to echo that, like, there's this morality to it. I think everybody shares the same, this is wrong. And yet I think until I came this close to being face-to-face -face with it, um, I didn't realize how wrong it was. And I, I don't think I completely do yet. I, I think that it's gonna take me a long time to um, really make a, a case out of this that feels um, almost like it's atoning for the shatteredness. You know, I'm, I'm counting the pieces. And so these are some of the core pieces we're talking about today, but. Um, our psychology is more fragile than anybody realizes. And I know that because I worked crisis lines that backed up crisis lines uh, for two years. And I found so many people calling into these lines for the first time who thought they weren't that kind of person. 
And one of the things I learned to do as a quick education tool for, for everybody was if you take any human being and, and sleep deprive them and give them two significant life stressors, within 72 hours, they could have a psychotic break. One of the things, another thing that baffles me about this is um, the people who stood around and watched and who didn't say anything. Yeah. I mean, like if you're in the presence of a real crime, yeah, I can understand that in the sense that if you try to intervene, you know, somebody may pull out a knife and stab you or something like that. But in this situation, nothing like that can happen. Yeah. So there's no, there's nothing to lose and yeah. saying something like, stop, don't do that. You know, yeah. And so why doesn't anyone say something I, that baffles me as well? That, yeah. And thank you for bringing that up. The model we're going to look at might explain a bit of that. We're going to very superficially dive into it. It's like a I don't know, three to four hour workshop usually, um, but it, it might give some answers there of why people would behave so differently in that setting versus um, in physical reality, including like calling 911, you know, like, uh, or, or blocking, figuring out how to block them themselves, you know, like he kept doing it. Nobody figured out how to block this person. So yeah, really concerning that this kind of human behavior happens and can happen as commonly as somebody having 1800 hours and being that confident in the harm they were doing. What, what it makes me think as an engineer who solves problems is mm -hmm. that there ought to be some switch you can flip when you find yourself in this situation that just eliminates these people in their interaction with you. Yeah. <laughs> Some social VR apps do have that, some don't. Yeah, go ahead, Wes. Go ahead, Wes. Um, oh, Wesley here. Um, it's funny because that's actually, um, we, we have a patent pending where that is one of the solutions. It's literally, we, we flip a switch. And I guess we weren't planning to talk about it in general, but to, to this audience, you, you, we're all specialists here and, um, and I sense a pretty good rapport amongst us, but but that's one of the things we want to do here is that um, right now, Facebook's solution to sexual harassment is a passive defense. Facebook mm -hmm. puts a shield, a, an invisible shield around each avatar, mm -hmm. and that works, but in some sense, the invisible shield just means that the, the offender, the predator, he just goes to find another target. It just pushes, um, it doesn't, but we have a solution and I'm, where one solution is where you can flip a switch. If you're the avatar, you view the avatar that's being accosted. You, you flip a switch and you can increase your virtual strength and your virtual speed. Mm -hmm. um, because the thing is, right now, when, when, you look, when you look at any avatar normally that's in, in, the, in the metaverse or in avatar, um, what happens is that the, the, the speed at which they move and the strength they move is that that's, those are really unconstrained. There are actual limits in our technology to how we can represent it how fast and big it can get but the way the when an avatar moves right now on the screen um that's nowhere near the limits that we can um to the, of the speed for example um, we can really crank up the speed if we need to and mm -hmm. so we can do and so mm -hmm. that's one of the solutions we have here is so that the, the woman can fight back with superior strength mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I've never, never heard that one as an idea. Thank you. Well, um, but actually, I, I want a virtual pepper spray. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Ruth, thank, thank, 
it's really good for me to hear that from somebody like you with your background, because um, right now we have a patent pending. So mm -hmm. in 18 months time, roughly it'll be examined by the P patent and trademark office. Mm -hmm. And so this helps us get some, helps me get some confidence in, in what I'm doing that will be, will become a patent in due time. Yeah. Well, and, and the tough part about that kind of theory or proposal will be how to recognize who is the aggressor and who is being aggressed and, yeah. and recognizing that like that is, that can change from moment to moment, right? So a microaggression can turn into a mesoaggression. So micro is you and me, and yet I could have a group with me that you don't know that you just triggered and now we're aggressing you as an overcompensation for what happened. And then that can also turn into a macroaggression. We might go and dox you online after that. And so, so there, there's a cycle that can rapidly escalate here that makes it very complicated on how to mediate and moderate these pieces. And yet one of the pieces so far, I'm not hearing anybody propose, and this is pretty much global in the tech industry. I don't see people talking about uh, reconciliation and education cycles for human beings who <clears throat> I believe to some degree are growing up in these predatory behaviors in virtual reality and these applications. I believe that they're developing significantly from these um, endorphin hits that come with causing harm. Yeah, and I'm so looking at neuroscience stuff um, for seniors, and um, there are aggressive seniors because, you know, it's part of that they're losing, they're going into Alzheimer's. Okay. Exactly. A little old lady will punch you in the face. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's never done that in her life. You know, she would hug you and kiss you to death. All of a sudden, she's slapping her grandkids yeah. around. You know, yeah. it's just the reaction. Yeah. And we're putting virtual reality glasses on them. So yeah, how do yeah. you, uh, she's interacting yeah. with her grandkid all of a sudden, virtually she's bitch slapping the baby. This right. stuff happens, but it's, it's, uh, it's, and it's education. So you do have to protect the baby, but then you go in and you look at how the brain works and you work with grandma offline to say, it's okay, let's, you know, your, your blood pressure is up. You're going to have a heart attack. Let's get you settled down, you know? Yes. And unfortunately, they try and over-medicate these poor people. Right. So I'm looking for using these tools where all of a That's sudden great. we take her out of the environment, That's we great. give her her garden, we give her where she's virtually petting her pet cat, and everybody chills. Yeah. So I'm looking at these, the, the, the creators of these games and the legislators, if I just throw a bunch of patents and, and laws at them, they won't get it. If I give them use case and working with you guys to build demos, here's yeah. a scenario. Here, here's here. This person got bill violated. This baby got slapped. How do we change that? And I always believe, and Jim could write the book on this on Kappa, you know, corrective action, protective action. How do you do this? How do you offer this tool set? How do you provide education, ethics, and the philosophy as we're going to grow into this digital age throughout our lifetime? And actually interact not just with our families but people all over the world you yes. know and do it in a positive way i th i think something that that you're you're bringing up here and that ruth touched upon is reconciliation i think maybe some, something that could be built into the system is when you throw wes's switch 
or any switch that says, you know, I'm in this unpleasant circumstance and the people that are really close to me bouncing into me are causing me distress. Uh, maybe that sort of sets a flag in the mm -hmm. system for those yeah. other people. And, you know, this happens in a lot of systems where, where uh, those flags maybe could build up and, and, and eventually that, that person's uh, abilities to travel to different parts of the system may get restricted. Mm -hmm. But um, another aspect of that is the rec reconciliation aspect. Mm -hmm. Maybe when someone threw that switch and you're the person who was viewed as the perpetrator, maybe you didn't mean to be a perpetrator. Maybe it was sort of an innocent interaction on your part that you made by mistake. Yes. And uh, therefore, when you find out that these switches had gotten thrown yes. without invading that other person's privacy, yes. you could put in a message that says, I'm sorry, I didn't really mean to create a problem for you. I, I, I did this by accident by not, and, and not realizing that it was yeah. causing you distress. Yeah, well put. Yeah, there's a, a one of uh, the leaders in Meta, uh, Jeff Lynn, um, through uh, his previous jobs, I believe he worked with some of the bigger gaming, which are super aggressive kind of mega gaming companies, uh, those applications fighting applications, but um, they were able to find some good, good evidence around community tribunals. So actually using what they almost call noise, the noise of harm, the noise of microaggressions happening. And if anybody's reporting those, um, that noise starts to flag a person and eventually it might bring them in front of the community uh, online um, where they're they're tipping a balance and all this evidence is against them and they're allowed to attempt to explain what they did wrong and try to explain how they're going to do it differently. Um, and that sometimes that actually really changed their behavior significantly that they got to see all those little details that had built up over time and respond to that. They also, once that they established these tri tribunal settings, they also um, started to seriously play with what happens when we change the environment just a little bit. What happens when we start cueing people and telling them you will be a more competitive player if you reinforce your team with positive affirmations. And, and we throw these kinds of like coaching comments in there, does that change people's behavior? And they found that it did, um, depending on how it was worded and depending on weird things that they couldn't even explain, like the color behind it or when it was told to the person. Is it told at the very end versus at the very beginning of their playtime? So there's a lot of complex nuances that we don't even understand around how to intervene, how, how little it takes to catch people when they're starting to do these bad behaviors and, um, and, and the variety that's needed to do that. And this was all just 2D web online, this kind of accountability piece. And so when we think about 3D, it becomes a whole other level of opportunity, but also complexity. And so a lot of what I was doing in Horizon Worlds was developing prototype experiences 
to bring people into when I saw they were misbehaving in different ways, including just not engaging in a way that made the group nervous. So if somebody's coming in and like benefiting from whatever is happening with the group, but they're not really participating in any meaningful way and there's a pattern with that, what kind of environment would help them see that part about themselves and explore and become more creative with how they could contribute? So we can aggress, but we can also like abandon each other in a way that can create that relational polarity. So this is a really vivid conversation. I think we could probably talk about this for a lot longer. Um, but back to some of what Jim was saying, um, this is where we're gonna look a little bit at archetypes again. And this is the dot model. This is a very, this is just the basic first layer from the frame of scarcity. What are the scarcity archetypes that get activated through fear um, when we are in relationship with each other? And so if you put fear in the middle of this cross, many models in psychology have the villain, victim, and hero. Some have the villain, victim, and bystander, but no models up to now, other than this one, have all four together. And when you put all four together, it starts to unlock some really interesting patterns about our emotions, about recognizing that a survival response is to fix it, but it is an archetype. And so when I think I'm fixing something, somebody else could see me as a villain or as a bystander. I'm not fixing it enough. And so adding the bystander in, because most models do just the villain, victim, and hero, um, really opened up a whole uh, multi-layered experience for many people in understanding their own emotions and how to catch our micro-conflicts before they turn into egregious harm, like we saw in the story we just looked at. So just with this very basic first layer, the dot model is about deepening our awareness and understanding the feelings of scarcity connected to them, orienting through new feelings of trust and curiosity. We're not gonna get to that part today because we're not gonna have time, but ironically we have scarcity. But um, if you ever wanna do the longer term, like full layered piece, I'm happy to go through that at a different time. And then the transformation is using that awareness of scarcity and abundance and putting them together to bring us back into the moment and make new decisions with complex information instead of simple information. In scarcity, we try to identify very black and white data points to just feel safe again. We wanna get the pressure off and we don't wanna feel fear anymore. And sometimes getting the pressure off can actually become an aggressive response. Um, and it can also lead to a sense of pleasure in that aggression or additional pain, but for some reason we think it's worth it and we see ourselves as a hero. Um, when we start to understand that these archetypes are always living inside of each of us and they're activated at different levels, we start to understand that like we've been primed and cued with these stories our whole life and we keep doing the same things with these different like opposite directions and expecting a different result. I can see how this could get very complex very quickly because 
for example, in the real world, let's say someone on the street steals a woman's purse, mm -hmm. and then the crowd around them grabs the thief and kills the thief. Exactly. Yeah. And so the crowd becomes the villain. Yeah. And then so, everybody finds out later that that person um, had a child who's sick and this was them trying to provide medicine for the kid. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. they're the so hero. Very complicated. And, yeah, exactly. And, and that's the piece where in some respects, adding the complexity is gonna make us less likely to quickly react. However, slowing down makes us more likely to to react in a way that's appropriate to what's happening. The quicker we react, the more likely we're gonna do harm. Often, we talk about all those like in the moment, you know, millisecond decision-making where we have to act really quick, but most of our life is not made up of those moments. There's very few of those moments in most human beings' lives. The rest of the time, we're going too fast and we, we jump to the other side without meaning to. Yeah, so if, if, if the crowd instead responded by just holding on to the thief and waiting for the, the authorities to arrive, that might be a much more adaptive behavior. And yet make the thief African-American in 2022 yeah. or actually all throughout. The crowd white. And the crowd's white, right? So now we're starting to like recognize, oh, everybody's in survival mode. Yeah. So one of the things I really appreciated about Black Lives Matter activism was training all the people marching to chant the words, hands up, don't shoot. Yeah. Now, at first I thought hands up, don't shoot was for the perpetrator. Like if you put your hands up, they won't shoot you. And then as I listened to this chanting so constantly for such a long time, I realized, no, this is a statement for both the person who is believing there's a weapon involved and for the person who is going to defend themselves possibly by becoming a very aggressive. So it could be for both of them, hands up, don't shoot. No. And if the crowd turns into that chant and is coaching both people to yield and soften and back down, you're less likely to have a violent outcome. Yeah. And so it was brilliant whoever came up with that um, because it's ingraining in that place that that drumbeat hands up, don't shoot, hands up, don't shoot. And I'm, I'm going to be really curious to see where that maybe was employed by a bystander crowd and how that might have changed the outcome over time. It, I think it employs a mechanism of uh, let's pause for a second and not let emotions carry us away. Exactly. Yes, and so good setup. I'm sorry we, we lost Wes there, but I'm glad he was here for a little bit. Um, this is uh, the scarcity full layer of Deepin. This does not even have the orient or transform part, but this usually takes about an hour to get to the place that I'm just showing you all as a preview, where we build stories off of each of these emotions and recognize that in the very center of our fear, fear, is not an inherently bad emotion or physical state to have. If it's constant, it can be taxing and shorten our lives. But it's, it's just information that there's some kind of dissonance in our environment going on. 
And if we recognize our emotions as connecting us together, instead of proof that we're broken, bad, or wrong, it becomes a dance. And people who practice this model can learn to recognize frustration, concern, irritation, confusion, and stay in those realms most of the time once they start to understand how to catch it that early. And then it just becomes slowing down and having a different kind of conversation or making more space or whatever. What we've been taught, however, as humans through most cultures throughout most of human history is having our feelings indicates separateness and aloneness and brokenness. Emotions are like us leaking in sadness. A lot of people describe it that way. And so we've, we've been cut off from really important uh, data points about our environment because we've never learned what is called emotional granularity by Brene Brown, um, who's done enormous amounts of research that supports this model without her ever seeing it, which just has always puzzled me. I'm like, how did she do that? She's picked all the emotions that fit together, but she still has never seen this. Um, and so what happens is we have multiple dynamics that start to tell stories. If, if we perceive somebody, for example, in the villain role, um, and they come into the room and we see them as powerful and we're in a fear place, there's going to be another person in the room that begins feeling powerless, that there's going to be an archetypal uh, pair at every moment. A harder one is for me, because it's a mirror, is the helpful. If I have a need to be helpful from a place of scarcity or fear, I actually can create helplessness in other people. And that's a really important piece that has really changed how I show up in any situation going forward, is recognizing this, this chronic need to fix can actually create the opposite of what my heart's hoping for if it's a compensation out of a place of fear. And again, it's just more about dosing than it is about the actual thing we're trying to do. Um, and it's about how we include other people and how we collectively build that experience of help instead of being that sole person that seems to know all. So, so this is multi-layered and it might just look like a lot of words, um, but it gives you an example of what I use to navigate my moments, um, both on the crisis lines when I worked them, and then also in virtual reality that will often catch behavior in people who I later find out are very well-known trolls, but I don't know that. And I don't necessarily like to go off of that archetype. And so I'll catch it really, really early and, and dance with them differently. And then people will get to know things about these quote villains of virtual reality and say, I don't understand. They behave so differently in your event or around you. And, uh, and now I, I can't hate them the same way. And you've kind of disrupted my, my paradigm of how I organize people and, and I didn't know that whole story. I just know that my bodies and my emotions and the proximity of how close we are together and how much pause is between our words and how directly we orient towards all of those pieces 
over time with this model, I've learned to pay very close attention to and have really given me a ton of rich information about what's happening in any given moment. I, I think that point in the middle, the fear point is very interesting because um, it's almost uh, an indication of lack of information or mm -hmm. uh, uh, you can't anticipate what's going to happen. For example, there may be a situation that's come up that involves a number of people. And I don't know, maybe I have some stake in the situation and I don't know how the various players are going to react. So it may occupy my time to think about, well, if so-and-so does this, then I'll do this and, and mm -hmm. so forth. And so I'm in a state of fear in a sense in mm -hmm. that I, I don't know what the situation is going to be. And I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do. Uh, and I just don't know. Yes. And what happens when I'm in that state of fear is whether or not, and usually when I'm in a really intense kind of obsessive fear of sorts, really worried, I'm actually going to be demonstrating that in my body language head to toe constantly. And I don't even know it because I'm just so in it. I'm not, I'm not watching. And so what happens is I will often manifest in other people what I fear. And, and then that worst outcome or a not good outcome will come up and then it'll validate that my fear predicted this outcome. So when I feel fear, I should trust it even more next time. And that loop is chronic in all of us of like that the feelings predict, the feelings inform a lot of psychology unfortunately actually says the feelings are personal only to you and if you just feel them and they'll go away and then you can get back to thinking and i believe that that's a disservice to our humanity i believe that our feelings are actually telling us about each other and we're way more connected than we'd like in this very individualistic society that psychology came from um, and that we're always dancing with each other with the tone of our voice with how we pause with what we're not saying. So and part, part of what you're saying, I guess, is that um, what we think someone may, may do, the thing that we fear, it may be from our standpoint, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. And, and I think it sort of goes along with the idea that when you have relationships, once contempt enters the relationship, then you anticipate that that person is always going to do the worst thing. And so anything they do, you're always going to interpret it. That's it. It's just one more thing over another thing, over another thing that just in a weird way, by telling a story that somebody is a troll, is a villain, is a bad person, we can feel safe again. Yeah. Because we have confirmed our expectations. And as long as we have distance or boundaries with that person, we're going to be okay. And the problem with that is that 99.999% of the time, nobody is one thing. And we just make them more that one thing by believing them that way. Yeah. So, um, yeah. But when I see this chart, I feel like those are interchangeable and it's relatively yeah. Um, yeah. become and not absolutely. For example, exactly. like a victim will be villain someday. And exactly. if you are do bipolar, I can see like you see a lot of serial killers. They yes. usually being bullied by their parents, right? Yes, exactly. And a lot of heroes. Sometimes you see Pope, 
we see a lot of scandals of celebrities, right? All the heroes might end up to be, I don't know, something else, right? Like maybe they 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 are not that as good. So I yeah. would say this will be maybe it's just a a moment or one event, oh, and the uh, the center of it is just one personal point of view yes. because someone's hero might be someone's villain or someone's yeah so someone's very it, it all depends on self-interest so i would feel like yeah like this is relatives not really absolute the chart that's or, right and that's that's the piece that happens when we're in fear state is our lizard brain gets activated and we sort the world in black and white and things that have been ingrained in us before we were even able to use words like our gender, our race, our ethnicity, our sexuality. We were told what those things were supposed to be before we even knew our own name. It's a boy, it's a girl. You're gonna marry a boy when you grow up. We're told over and over again what we're expected to be and it's so pervasive that if any part of us doesn't feel alignment with that, we have to climb out of that closet, which is more like a mountain of doom, you know, and jump off of it. And when we have not explored those dichotomies for ourselves and really without attachment, if we lived on a different planet that did not have all this discrimination towards this thing, really sat with what is the truth of who I am? Most of us have not done that, especially if we do have more of the normative attractions or, or pieces. We just, we haven't had to really examine those, those identities. And so what we'll do, because we cut ourselves off by being cut off so many times is we cut those people out. And we do it in all kinds of ways that doesn't necessarily have any direct targeting behavior. And then, and then we villainize the direct targeting behavior people without realizing how much we have all been continual participants in these cycles of discrimination. That to discriminate is a lizard brain response to fear. It's to sort simply. And it just means that we have not learned how to grow a group creature that is honestly, genuinely, and truly safe. Most of us have never had group experiences that are genuinely inclusive and, and believe and promise and practice belonging till death do us part. And because we haven't had that, it's a myth that we don't believe it exists. And so we participate in these kinds of human sacrifice pieces where instead of you having a bad day, you are bad. And we do that because we were told we were bad too. And so we just externalize that trauma, that rupture that happened because we don't know what else to do there. We didn't have reconciliation cycles. So why should they get them? And so this is the core of Ruth. Sometimes uh, every once in a while, people will say like, well, what if this is just your version of your psyche and it doesn't apply to everyone? Maybe this is just your core wound. And I'm like, Okay, you all have a map on me. <laughs> and it is correlated with quite a bit of data, not as much as I'd like. I think that more and more data could come. And um, 
it's a it's a better explanation than I've ever found for how we respond to each other and how to untangle those responses and recognize our humanity again. So yeah, I appreciate that this is a heady group. So each of you can look into this and hopefully see some patterns that maybe are useful. There's all kinds of really interesting layers to this that you're not gonna see today about how these different archetypes build relationship together and reinforce their identities when we really get stuck in them. One thing to think about around VR is that, especially during COVID, it was more acceptable for me to say, often at the events that I was leading, just to normalize what we were doing with these heavy bricks strapped to our heads, was saying whatever was happening in physical reality before the moment we find ourselves in right now was not working for us enough to keep us there. And maybe a lot of it was working, but to some degree, everyone's feeling like a bystander. They're, they're naturally being cued to leave their physical reality, whatever's going on socially or not going on, it wasn't working enough. And so if we think about it like that, and the group that was watching my friend be very, very harmed, understanding that the people being present in those moments that are actually polarizing it even more just by watching are not thinking I'm a bystander. They're a bystander to their own life, but they're thinking I'm here to be entertained, not intervene. Uh, I, I think it maybe it's because it's a nominee, right? Nobody knows me. So what, yeah. like they, they, their original human monster <laughs> yeah. thoughts can come out, right? Some people, you know, maybe like I would say, I, I don't want to have like a stereotype, but Japanese, right? Let's say they are so polite and they are so clean. They are so perfect. But you mm -hmm. see like a lot of weird things or crazy stuff is, a lot of things is happening there, right? So yeah, so I I I feel like if someone's because we 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 are from I don't know <laughs> sapien, right? We are still part of us, our animals, and we have our you know some original monster um, uh, animalized uh, you know personality still not civilized. So that part maybe because of anatomy, yeah, yeah, and. Uh, those power will creep out. Yeah. Well, yeah, go ahead. I think another thing that sort of goes along with what Dom is saying is, you know, we all watch TV, right? Probably. And um, what is the news filled with? It's filled with trauma in right. people's lives. And what are the games we're playing? Violence and violation as a way to feel better. Yeah, so we're we're watching the news and thinking, oh my God, I'm glad I don't live there and I'm my house right. is washed away by the flood. Yes. And so maybe in a sense, where when we're in VR, we still sort of feel like we're watching TV. Absolutely. And if you think about VR is getting closer and closer, and maybe someday we'll figure all the neurons out, but there is a dissonance happening when we're teaching our body that our ears and eyes. And sometimes our hands, a little bit our hands, maybe haptics. Most people aren't in the haptics yet, right? Not all of our senses are coordinating the way they have for the rest of our reality. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And so, and so our body is having a mixed message response. And when we get a mixed message response, we stop and we listen yes. and we pay attention and it's stimulating, but it's also, it's also sedating to some degree yeah. because, because a part of our body is just telling us don't go anywhere and don't do anything because you could get really hurt. You've got goggles on your head. Right. Yeah. And, and so the, it, it amplifies that frozen response by necessity. And yet there's some side effects to that frozen response that is doing real damage to human beings. In the scenario that I presented that happened a couple of weeks ago, who do you think the person, who, who was the entity holding the space for the hero, Victor, in that experience? Well, it didn't sound like there was one. And so by default, it becomes the container because this container is not a tree that we can feel and just say, well, this tree just grew here because the seed fell here. The container was intentionally designed by multiple people. And that feedback says there's an expert in charge. Somebody will stop this if it's really bad. So you're sort of relying on the system to take care of it. So you're just going to stand there and watch. Because we know coming in, it was on purpose and it was consciously designed. And therefore, I'm a participant and I'm not in charge. Yeah. And if it was really bad, they would have prepared for something like this. So this must be normal. Yeah, we had a talk on Sandbox not too long ago. And one of the questions, I'm you know a co-organizer for the group. And so we were sort of reviewing the talk ahead of time. And the presenter said, if anyone has any questions or comments, just let me know. And I said, is there something built into Sandbox that deals with harassment of users? Some sort of mechanism to help take care of that? And I said, I don't know. So he checked. And in his, in his talk, he said, to my surprise, I looked through all the founding documents and so forth. There's nothing there. There's nothing there to put this behavior in check whatsoever. Yes. And, and I believe that's what I'm finding. And that's why I'm looking and going to you guys, because I'm going to use this for patients. I'm going to use this for sick people. I'm going to use this for myself. So if there's no guidelines and no use cases, it's my job to do that. <laughs> yeah. And that, that I believe we can, part of us can feel very baffled and almost guilty or ashamed looking at that and saying, how did how did human beings get that level of decision-making power without preparing for these very common outcomes of well, abuse? The, the same thing happened with TikTok, okay? I use that as the, 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 everybody thought it was fun, but then kids are, you know, taking cupfuls of cinnamon and suffocating themselves because their lungs can't breathe, you know? So it's like, there's, there's wrongful death and then, or they're blowing things up and, you know, people get hurt. Uh, because the, you know they see it they think it's funny and fear is fun okay that's the only thing I would underlie is, is, is uh, hey I ride motorcycles I ride yeah. like a bat out of hell that's how I get my kicks you know I'm, I'm a cancer survivor I'm going through medical stuff but when I get on my bike and I'm cruising down highway one yeah that fear factor living in an earthquake zone yeah. surviving California fires I'm yeah. fearful but I come out stronger you know yeah. so I think yeah. fear, 
I, I don't want to just have it here as fear is bad and I want to be a flower or a snowflake. No, I thrive on fear. I, I improve it. You know, I make it better so that I can deal with it and um, make others feel comfortable. So that actually leads me into a piece that I don't always talk about with this model is part of my rabbit hole falling down into virtual reality was to actually out of the intention of bringing this model into the three-dimensional uh, sphere, this is a 2D axis that you see that I've taught and is, is the most validated in alignment with current models, but, but a synthesis of many different things. There's actually a third axis in this that I never get to teach or explore or, or even show people because it's very hard to, you know, it makes it complicated to try to move it around. But that third axis has to do with pleasure and, and how pleasure fits in from a fear perspective and how both in our eating and in our sensuality, so the survival mechanisms are feed and fuck, um, we can become very, very harmful. And on a macro level, we can rape and pillage is, is the group instinct when we're feeling victorious um, but also be extremely destructive. And so fun could be considered part of that, um, all about the perspective. There was a, a small study done a few years ago where they took people with um, high uh, symptoms of severe anxiety, and then also people who fit classifications for very excited cheerleaders, and they put them into MRIs um, or actually it would have been probably fMRIs and uh, took pictures of their brains activated in those states. And to their surprise, they found no difference in the patterns that were showing up for people who were profoundly anxious, pathologically anxious, and also like chronically excited. And so they, they spontaneously, because they didn't expect that kind of uniformity across it, they asked the people to come out and try to induce that opposite state. So the excited people, they said, try to get really scared of something. The scared people, they said, try to get really excited. And they put them in there and they still saw the same thing. And it was a small study, but there's been other things since that are validating that our brain does not know the difference between yay and shit, right? Our brain is um, programming very similarly from what we can tell. Uh, it's I think the missing piece here is how our emotions and our body is lining up with our brain. With enough support, with enough boosting cheerleaders in my life, I can go into a really scary situation with hope and hope can make me excited about it, even if it's terrifying. Um, most of us don't have that kind of group experience or that sense of support. And so we believe that when we feel fear, that's just the way it is. Um, but fear is just a sign that things have changed and we need more support and we're figuring out how to get it. So yeah, this, this page, you know, we could, it, it's, it's such a fundamental piece of my humanity Sometimes I think uh, in the future, there'll be little contacts, uh, you know, maybe with the VR contacts or whatever they're developing, but that some people when they're training with this will just have this model kind of imprinted on their eyes 
for a little bit to just be watching those patterns. But a lot of people who see it and work with it enough, they don't need anything to cue them. They're always thinking about it years and years later. They just see these patterns everywhere. And once they see the patterns, it's exciting. Once we recognize the patterns, then we can actually start to tell new stories. And so I've heard very absurd, interesting, hilarious stories about random moments in life where people remember this and they choose a different path because they realize they have an opportunity here to grow a new story. I, and I, I think yeah. and that, a very interesting thing about this third dimension and you talking about people who are experiencing fear and excitement are, show up the same in the functional MRI. Um, I have a nephew, for example, who the best way I can explain him is that he has a thrill-seeking gene. Mm -hmm. And situations that he finds himself in, I don't want to even see, say his profession since this mm -hmm. is being recorded, but um, situations that he finds himself in as part of his profession would absolutely terrify me. Mm -hmm. And I would want to have nothing to do with. And, um, but he gets a charge out of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, he can climb a mountain and what would scare the heck out of most people, he just finds thrilling. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, there's something different about the way his brain is interpreting this situation mm -hmm. than the way my brain interprets it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well put. And that that we look at those luminaries, a lot of people will call somebody who does daring things like that successfully a hero, right? Of like, oh, wow, you're showing us what's potential for our humanity. And, and then people who do it and then die that way, some people might call them a hero, depending on how they die. Some people might call that careless or a villain or, you know, they're a victim of the weather or whatever. So we use these archetypes all the time to like try to make sense out of the world and understanding that the bystander is part of the equation has been such a important unlocking of heroes cannot exist without bystanders. Yeah, there's a, there's a great example of this, I think. And that is, I was at Yellowstone one time and we were at the edge of a precipice, this really huge precipice. And uh, I'm not, I don't have any particular fear of heights or anything, but when I looked over the precipice and I was on the edge, I just had a feeling of disorientation. Mm -hmm. I'd never really experienced anything like that before. Mm -hmm. And then uh, one of the Walendas crossed the Grand Canyon on a rope. And so he's got his balancing bar and all this stuff. And he's very well trained as he's out going across the Grand Canyon. He, he, he mentioned, boy, uh, seeing this huge depth over which I'm standing on this rope, I'm really getting a strange feeling. So he was feeling something similar to that, but he reacted in a different way. He yes. was something that he was trained to deal with and so yeah. forth. Uh, where I, as I was not. And yeah. so um, the bystanders make yeah. him do that. That's, that's why it. he does it. That's it. And, and, and for me, the part of me that maybe had any idealizing of heroes, when I realized that heroes need bystander, it kind of popped that bubble for me. Yeah. And I realized that people pay for my joy in my helpfulness by feeling helpless. 
And yeah. so I really have to ask questions about what the right medicine is there. Making somebody feel helpless when there's an emergency situation physically with their body, for example, can be useful. Making them slow down, stop, and not move when their body needs to be still and they need to be evaluated. An expert, you know, patient role can be good, but we use that in a lot of other settings and think we're doing the good or the right thing, and that's a duality. And so this model allows us to move out of those dual mindsets and see the whole piece and understand how to use our emotions as chemistry, like alchemy. So I was just remembering the other day, one of my favorite ones here is a yoga instructor I worked with a long time ago, an owner, you know, in a yoga business, everybody just across the board was like super Zen guy, just so loving and such an example of yogi, whatever. But lo and behold, as many leaders do, he comes to me and he confesses like, I am angry all the time. And I can't stand so many of these people and I don't know what to do with my anger and can we just cut it out? And he's angry at his anger. And he actually said it or unlocked it in a way I'd never heard it is he realized after learning this model that the way he could work with his anger, we talked about elements and anger and villain end is like fire. It's the destructive end and victim. Uh, it's more like the water, the sadness, the like push, the, the evisceration. And so what he would do is he'd go to his office when he was feeling really angry and he'd close the door and he would, would picture two different stories. One that made him deeply sad, which we had been accessing a lot of his sad memories and stories. And one that made him extremely angry. That one was easy. The sadness was harder, but he would just pull those stories together until they overlapped. And he would get the most intense experiences of peace and presence. He could last on them sometimes for an entire week before having to do that exercise again. It was life-changing for him to recognize that when he could hold the duality of both of those together and be with them and feel both feelings at the same time, um, he really became the presence everyone else experienced him as. And he gave himself permission to use more feeling words, like I'm frustrated or irritated and that that was human. And so he could negotiate some of those pieces that were triggering anger earlier in, in whatever was happening. But it unlocked this at a whole other level, these infinity loops you see are just kind of twisted circles. And uh, weirdly enough, kind of like meta signal, you know, the meta is like this infinity loop, but it's supposed to be resembling a three-dimensional. So like ugh, um, that that's similar here of like, these are just, we're getting our wires crossed with our feelings, but we when we choose to feel them both at the same time and learn how to feel those gradients, it's powerful and it can change how we tell our stories of ourselves and each other. So yeah, we spent more time on that than I thought. Uh, we've kind of been doing Q and A as we've been going. Um, this is the exercise and I sent a PDF out so you can do this on your own a kind of as a journal exercise for yourself of like in the situation we just looked at, you know, looking at what are your feelings? Do you use I am feeling? Or I am this feeling, I am sad, I feel guilty, I feel shame. 
do you use those in your everyday language? Because if you're not saying them out loud, you're unlikely to be saying them to yourself. And if you're not saying them to yourself, you're numbing away from those feelings. And if we aren't feeling our feelings, we're more likely to act on them without really understanding the amount or what they're actually telling us about ourselves. And we can become part of these scenarios in a role we don't wanna be playing. Um, understanding with those feelings is gonna trigger history. What, what are my stories about this rupture? What are, what's the thing I don't wanna say about this story that I, I secretly believe? What's my knowledge? What do I actually know that's validated by data? Orienting to the relationship, like how do I keep this from just being watching a news story or a TV show? Who, who do I care about that, that makes this personal for me? And in this case, hopefully it's me. You care about Ruth and Ruth was the entire village for this person who went through this in this moment because that was the scenario. But if you do this work, Ruth will be less lonely in her village work. And I, I appreciate your care. Um, present moment, setting boundaries with how we show up, but recognizing even if it's just a, you know, a modicon of support on LinkedIn or whatever, how do I respond to this moment and not be the bystander? And then the reframe, how is this an opportunity for me to grow, for us to grow in our relationship? And from all of that, then the transformation comes where I would have been if I didn't go through these steps, you know, in that moment, because I've practiced this so many times, it, it was probably about 60 seconds for me to go from ignoring all phone calls these days to picking up the phone, even though I knew it was going to be a hard conversation. She was calling immediately after this trauma. And, and so I recognized what I could do in that moment was show up and be in a state of presence and join, join her where she was at. So recognizing that this model is really fun to do in person, physically in person, it can turn into games. Kids pick this up all over the place and they love to role play. And they, they, there are children who've picked this model up without even knowing how to read um, in just amazing ways. Um, so that more than anything ever, I've been validated by the youngsters who are like, oh, you know my language. And I'm like, I guess so. And so um, just recognizing though, that maybe there are ways it doesn't cross over into VR um, or maybe it's more applicable in VR. I don't know. I, I think there's more research and application to be done. Um, and then let's see here. This is a, a meme of sorts or, or a piece that I, it's I, over many years of searching the world to see what's already out there that's teaching this. This is one of my favorite ones um, that I, I didn't make. Um, you are here. So liminality is what this is addressing. Liminality is, means the door frame between two places, right? So it's the in-between. And scarcity is one side. We're always trying to get away from scarcity into abundance having more than enough. I'll be happy if I have more than enough. But by trying to get to somewhere else, we're back in scarcity. And so liminality is the key wisdom of the dot model. You are here at the intersection of past and future. There is nowhere else you can be. And that helps me come back to my body. 
liminality can be a really tough place to recognize because there's no guarantees with liminality. There's so many different pathways and there's complexity there too. But in the liminality, I was able to listen to my friend and just feel feelings with her and feel my own and allow for the possibility that this was gonna be a healing moment, even though we were both really hurting together and that it's valuable to feel our pain. And already what I've noticed is we're in much closer contact over the last few weeks and, um, and it's just more fluid. There's a lot more trust there. And so that's my wish for you is that when you lean into the hard feelings and you feel the rupture and the trauma that comes with this technology, especially with as young as it is, as it is, um, Notice the relationships that build through those, those painful moments and notice how it's transforming you. And with that, we have 10 more minutes for questions and then we're gonna close up. Yeah, I, I really like the, the presentation. It's so different, right? Um, so different from start from technology perspective, right? And it's from the heart, the core, right? And uh, I do truly think that as for VR, um, the interesting thing is that the majority, 99% of the de developer are guys, right? So the interesting thing is that I remember a long time ago, my friend, uh, he developed a, a VR collaboration app, right? So uh, I jump in and test it out. And he said, oh, I have another cool mode which his, his entire avatar will overlay on my avatar. And he will see what I see and he will say this one, this one, and tell me what to do, right? And I feel like, wow, he is inside me and I hear his voice is around here. I mean, for do to do, right? Like a testing is fine, right? Yeah. It's just like, oh, cool. Yeah, thank you, bro, right? But for a girl and a guy yeah, jump into my body, like the exact position overlay. So I think- in Unity, it's just a game option, right? For example, like, um, yeah, in Unity, you just see like, oh, this is like a, 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 a person player and you just overlay on top exact that. So I, I think he showed me like, wow, this is a cool function. So you see, I can just see what you see and tell you what you do. And there are another friends and I told her another girl, and I asked her, like, what do you think about the function? Do you think a little weird? Because I, we, we all know that the guy was so excited and shared with the guy. Other guys are so happy. But girls feel weird, especially guys trying to tell you what to do and feel like, I, I feel like, yeah. And I even see his hand overlay oh. my hands. Oh. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I told her that I feel weird. And she said, yes, yes. But I didn't say it because, because. It, it feels weird, but it seems like we are game objects, right? We, we, we are just like, you know, 3D models. Yeah, I mean, it's like some somehow, yeah, I mean, it's convenient, right? Uh, and another part is like, yeah, it's weird just for different genders. So mm -hmm. yeah, so this rests another question. Maybe when, when we select the team or when we build something, we need to be more inclusive, like different colors of people, race, uh, gender, ages, right? All those stuff need to be included. So, so when when design a platform that everyone can, you know, do understand 
what's going on because if all the guys they 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 are cheer up and release a platform and yeah. girls jump in and just start feeling like Very if it is due to do it's probably fine <laughs> guy yeah. show the yeah. girl and just overlay my body I mean we are yes. friends so it's I feel like I I, I told yeah. yeah it is just weird but I just feel like it yeah, yeah. I mean I don't know yeah yeah Thank so so much for that. You you could have given me no better gift or payment than to say what you just did because my DEI work began when this model was born because I started to understand how much of our human oppressive cycles have to do with survival mindset um, that is actually unlockable, that we can think differently and become more inclusive very quickly when we start to use our emotions as chemistry to belonging instead of um, something to hide and experience privately when they're really overwhelming, which is what most people do. Many cultures teach that that is honorable and the right way to go. You don't want to burden anyone with your pain. And yet what happens when we're all hyper positive or toxically positive is we create things that do harm to everyone except those who look and think like us. And so a diverse and inclusive metaverse will be made by a diverse and inclusive developer community. And until that happens, it's going to do harm. And who knows who will be the one who judges the gradient of harm and if it's not worth it and it should all be shut down. But I think we're a little too far along on this train for anybody to say that for sure. So in the meantime, how do we get tools that help us quickly upgrade and open our minds to listening to not just our brain, but our body and our instincts and each other from our heart. So well put, that's a really sweet way to, to close this because I never envisioned I was gonna become such an activist in DEI that I grew such a tolerance for my own biases coming out and becoming part of the conversation when this model happened. I started to just understand that like every one of those glitches, those discomforts was an opportunity to be more inclusive and, and build more relationship and more village. And the pain was worth it and has been. So yeah, grateful. Yeah, thank you. Uh, any yeah. other thoughts uh, you want to share? Um, I mean, uh, Ruth, I, I, I love what you're doing. And it's very educational. You know, I work in healthcare, and we are here in San Francisco. So we have, you know, all these different sexuality things. And I, I myself, you know, had caught myself uh, in situations where maybe I'm too abrasive or unsensitive and you know and I'm a very likable person and then you go oh my god you know <laughs> so I think VR is also what I'm doing what my company's doing uh is also augmented uh workforce mm -hmm. you know there aren't enough doctors and and nurses and a lot of it is is rote stuff like fill out these forms let me talk you through this people aren't using the text chat bots and it's Stanford you know so of course VR is a big thing yeah. Um, mental health is a big thing here in California. So we're looking for tools, looking for ways. Mm -hmm. I also, we're not just using 
the visual, the VR, but also senses, the, the sensors. You know, I can give you uh, yeah. a hearing aid that you need for your hearing, but I can now also monitor your heart rate and your temperature yeah. while yeah. You're, you're doing this. And we're talking to VR companies mm-hmm. here in Silicon Valley about adding those to the VR glasses or making VR glasses change so that you're not nauseous and you can wear them continuously during your cancer treatment, you know, which could be a year, two or three. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole lot of, tech that goes into but you need to have this human quality otherwise you know (laughs) it's not going to be successful and it can do harm so i champ you're a champion here uh i would like to interact with you and seriously work on on the case studies um for our our thing that wes was talking about and for my work with the foundations and the regulatory affairs folks wonderful yeah well, it, it's an honor to sit with each of you, and I can tell that you're in this for the long run, and it's it's brilliant to be included in this conversation for a moment. Um, yeah, I have a lot of a lot of curiosity as to where what adventures are next, and I hope that it involves more working with this model because I put it down in some ways for the last two years, from actively teaching it daily to just building it subliminally into a lot of environments. And um, it's been fun to pick it back up and go, wait, no, this gives me a lot of energy to teach this. So yeah, I'm curious. Maybe something that would be a motivation for communities in general is if we had some sort of rating, which could be just a particular website or, or whatever that says, this community has functions to deal with harassment and so forth. This other community does not. And so maybe that would encourage communities to sort of step up and implement these types of things when otherwise they wouldn't bother. Exactly. Yeah, standardization for safety features is on the horizon. I know a couple groups that are working on that. I haven't jumped into that so much because of, if you remember the model at all, it, there's a judgmentalness of like cutting people out and being like, you're not so much and kind of making a hierarchy. I'm more interested in a rating system for education and reconciliation. That uh-huh. would be something I would be really interested in investing in. The unfortunate thing is, is I don't know that it exists. Like I don't know any education reconciliation pieces around psychoeducation and actually even getting in Horizon Worlds, one of the prototypes I built was um, I did a lot of community jams where we taught the community how to build and then infused the messaging with DEI language and practice. And so one of the pieces we were starting to develop was how do we create world jams, world building jams on whatever uh, whatever the hot error of behavior is that we're seeing this month. And that part of the reconciliation could be recruiting people who are doing these behaviors to actually come in and participate in teaching how, how to belong better together and show, show us our blind spots as a community that feels excluding for them, but also how to teach people earlier in that cycle to belong better so they don't end up in their situation. So, um, yeah, I, I have some different environments that were were begun in that in that idea that I don't know that they exist, and I feel careful about more rating systems like our school system. You know, 
if you don't have a hundred percent, you're not perfect and you have, you're not good enough. You know, there's a continual message in our system that says you're not good enough. And, um, and I feel careful about leaning that direction. I think it's going to exist and it is, it is being formed. I'm more curious about something that included both of like, where, where is the funding, who is investing the most funding in actually investing in the communities that they're making money off of? investing in bettering them as human beings and and empowering them to better themselves um that's that's the metaverse i envision which is not the ready player one we've all seen on tv i i guess what what people might be interested in in general is and i understand your your hesitancy about rating systems um but what people might be interested in general is if there's a an environment or a metaverse that's uh, that doesn't have any sort of harassment policies whatsoever yeah, versus one that has the, the resolution practices that you described that goes all the way in that direction. Yeah. Um, maybe you say, well, I don't really want my kids going into this system. Yeah, yeah. I would almost think about it like training wheels of sorts of like recognizing that you need pretty sophisticated self-aware people to go into some applications like VR chat and and be able to like hold on to themselves through that experience so putting a 12 year old with you know mostly a missing frontal lobe in there not a good idea Um, and then there are other systems that are are more intentionally designed so yeah VR create connect had that as a vision um when when I when I registered the name and it was all, it was this, is this idea of that the creation and the connection is the infinity loop towards humanity, almost like transforming ourselves out of the need for all this technology, that if it really works, we're going to build the world we're fantasizing about in physical reality and spend less and less time in it. And, um, and that part of that is, is investing in community health and well-being. And anybody doing that would absolutely get a VR Create Connect stamp of approval. So send them my way if anybody ever sees this and says, I know an organization. Oh, my God, let me talk to them. Um, But what I'm finding mostly for social VR, and this is a bit of a generalization, and I don't know all of it, but in general, social VR invests a lot in marketing, but not actually. They invest a lot in marketing, but not as much in community health. Yeah. Yeah, NFTs rather than, uh, you know, safety. Yeah, I'm there. (laughs) So, and and I get get that corporate structures are not going to see that anywhere on a priority list, but this is a different kind of thing than just offering somebody a product they can buy at the store. This is, this is working with our own psychology. And I think it requires a different standard of expectation of what comes with it. Just like toxic nutrients, you know, that everything has toxins and nutrients, but sometimes the lack of nutrients is the toxin. And I think that there's a lot out there that lacks nutrients entirely. Well, I think corporations, you know, they tend to follow the money. And if they find out that their little corner of the metaverse is less populated because people are afraid of it, because they don't have any protections in there, then they're going to wake up and, and yeah. they're going to say, well, we need to do yeah. something about this. 
And the parade corporation that that actually decides to do that investment and and makes it a long-term plan and and creates a team around that, that's the team I want to be on. Yeah. And so yeah, um, it, and his folks in Australia and Asia um, and I guess Southern Cal are actually monitoring different sites and counting the number of zombies and scammers and all of that that exists because we have to build a case as to why we need these guidelines and and actually on the return on investment. Yeah, you have 3,000 users, but it's like Twitter, you know. Yeah, you have so many users, but even Elon Musk is saying, hey, these are phony, these are fakes, these are scammers, you know. How do do we not build a Twitter, you know? And so, (laughs) but, but I was impressed with how he is working on that on, on, he's a hard facts kind of guy, you know, where I'm up here with the regulatory thesis, you know, <laughs> so we make a good pair. <laughs> Interesting. Wow. Um, yeah, they, they, we are on that frontier where we get whatever we decide here is going to impact a lot of people going forward. So I appreciate all of us spending our Saturday morning talking about important and hard, complex topics like this. Okay, I think that's our our time today though. So um, we'll stop here and then yeah, please follow up with any questions. There's a lot of references throughout my website. So I was a bit lazy and I didn't put them all here but you can find a lot of material. Thank you so much uh, for uh, being our speaker and we all feel so enlightened by (laughs) your, yeah, by your event. Now, you you know, like, cause I can tell you, I, I grew up from Asian, so I totally understand, you know, um, you know, like you are always not good enough, right? Because mm-hmm. in Asian culture, we just criticize. Yeah. Right. And uh, the interesting thing is that I told my student, I, I told everybody I'm a root myself from that Asian culture and be more positive and more forgiven about myself here. So yeah, so every time I, to be honest with you, I feel so scary every time when I call my mom or pick up my mom's call because it's all complaint. Yeah. It's all why you didn't do X, Y, Z, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and when I told her that, oh, you know, I I went to AWE speaking and she said, she will say, hey, how much money you earn? You know, all those exactly. types of right. stuff. Me. Yeah, mm-hmm. very, you, you know, like, yeah. I don't know, I, I don't, Every time when I, 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 right now I told myself, if I talk to somebody, if my energy is up, then I, I need to go to more with that person. If my energy is down, then I need to avoid that person. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And you know, there are a lot of uh, social uh, boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or like boundaries or, you know, all, all those rules. So yeah, yeah I, I think you, your chart really help us to kind of just get out of, you know, everything that you should do before implement in your brain and mm-hmm. just look at that and honest with you yeah. what's going on. That's really well put of like, we're all focused on programming VR, but how do we remember inclusive programming for ourselves first? Yeah, yeah, That's well said. Yes. Much better VR. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, cool. Yeah. Thank you so much. So yeah. The, the yeah. VR is between our, uh, you close your eyes and 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 the VR is in your brain. It's always been there, right? It, it's like 
It's like when I tell my cancer patients and I show them, hey, I'll show you the scars on my boobs and other parts of my body. Just know you're going to get through this. You're going through hell now. You lose your hair. You lose your boobs, but you will survive. And we also had a punching bag when you were talking about the fear and the hate. We actually had a punching bag that someone could go in there, just punch it before they go in for their chemo. And it made them feel good. (laughs) Yeah, to release it, you know, and know that they get to belong however they are. So that's my message. You belong exactly as you are. Thank you for belonging with me and yeah. um, happy yeah. metaversing. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, and uh, yeah, and thank you everyone. And hopefully see you all uh, next Saturday. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye everyone. Thanks, Jim, everybody.